open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul was reading for us earlier. By the way, you can get this um, X-Files, does X-Files um, predict the future? Just go to YouTube and Google it, and you can watch it yourself. And you can pass it on to other people, as Ed did with me, and I'm really grateful that Ed did that. All right. I've entitled this this morning, The Necessity of Thorns and Discipline. The Necessity of Thorns and Discipline. Paul is writing here, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might depart, it might depart from me. <clears throat> and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now when we read a portion like this, I want to make sure that we keep um, it in context with the whole reason for the writing of Second Corinthians. Remember Paul's reason for writing this second letter to the Corinthian church. If you're taking notes, I went through this last week, but I again want to set the stage so that you have an understanding exactly what Paul is trying to accomplish. In chapter two, one through nine, Paul appeals them to forgive. Forgive who? Well, the guy that was committing uh, sexual immorality in the church, um, they wrote Paul and told him about it, and Paul wrote back and said he's got to be removed immediately, um, lest... He loses his soul in a day of salvation. This guy thought he was going to heaven. And Paul knew he wasn't. Everybody in the church knew about it. Nobody was saying nothing about it. And he says, don't you know a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? So he said he had to write this letter and appeal to forgive this guy. Because what had happened, because they did kick him out of the church, is he repented. And now he's back in. So there's a small group of people who have a problem with Paul. And their problem with Paul is they don't like Paul telling them what to do. And um, so he's appealing to them to forgive this man and accept him back into fellowship. We have all sinned. Somebody got an amen for that? We've all been forgiven. And we have no right to hold anything over anybody else if there's true repentance. Another good place for an amen. Then in chapter five, he tells them that there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ where they're gonna have to give an account, not of their sins, but how they responded to God's word. How did they take it to heart? So that was in chapter five. In chapter six, verses 14 to 18, Paul appeals not to be unequally yoked. And so their problem was they were yoked in with this guy, and um, 
So he tells them that the scripture clearly teaches not to be unequally yoked. Chapter seven, he switches gears and one through seven, God turns from, um, there's good news from Titus about the majority, okay? The majority of the church in Corinth. Um, Paul, here's this good news um, that because they accepted his letter and they dealt with it. They booted the guy out. That was the majority of the church. Chapter 10, I call uh, the religious, the rebellious minority. And um, I'll bring this up a couple times, but I won't bring it up here so you don't forget. <clears throat> I want to talk about work ethics this morning. And remember that uh, Corinth was a city of 700,000. Two-thirds of them were slaves. They weren't used to be told what to do and how to do it. And not only that, but I don't think they had a work ethic at all because this is going to become an issue. Why work when you got slaves? They can do the work. So the rebellious minority, they didn't care for Paul. Um, I've stated this last week. He he doesn't look right in chapter 10, verse 10, and he doesn't talk right in uh, verse 10 and chapter 11, verse 16. They were looking at his outward appearance. And um, uh, we'll talk about one of the problems outwardly that Paul could have had this morning as we look at this text. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, he lets them know, coming at it from now a different angle, that God loves you guys. And he tells them that you're the bride of Christ. Chapter 12, last week, Paul is taken to heaven. So you see what's going on here? He's coming at them from every angle possible to try to get their attention so that they will receive his authority as an apostle. We, we read right here that he really doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's the Lord working through him. And so that brings us to this week. Paul was taken to heaven so that you'll follow the flow of this. Let's go back to chapter 12, verse one. As he's giving all these reasons that they should listen to him, but not really him, he's saying it in the name of the Lord. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, who was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I speak the truth, but I forbear lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So now, he's still trying to get this one main point across. The whole theme of 2 Corinthians is to try to get the attention so that they will listen to him. So he tells them all these things that he's going through. And last week, he says, well, I've been to heaven. Does that carry any weight in you listening to what I have to say? 
And because he went to heaven, that brings us to where we are this week with verses 7 through 10. It ties in with what we just read. Unless I should be exalted above measure. How many people would be writing books right now? My trip to heaven and back, you know, and making money on it on the side. Paul says that's not going to happen. Lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, the flesh in the flesh was given to me, catch this, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. I mean, there's our Bible study just within itself. Lest I be exalted above measure. Um, I'll get to that in just a second. Talking about a messenger of Satan. Uh, This has happened before. With who? Job. And what the Lord allowed Satan to do to Job. And so here we have another example of the Lord giving permission. Um, It's not Satan, it's a messenger of, so it's some demonic force. And it was to buffet Paul, lest I be exalted above measure. And Paul does not like this at all. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might, it being the demon, might depart from me. He's praying, Lord. Three times he prays. Let's deal with the subject, first of all, of a messenger of Satan buffeting him. And what, what, what does it mean? How is, what was the buffeting all about? Well, um, um, one of the reasons is to keep, keep us humble, usable, um, the other to discipline and correct us. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And um, the first thing that we want to look at is Paul's thorn in the flesh. And when God says no, he prays three times. And after the Lord says no in verse 9, Paul's just glad that the Lord talked to him. He said, you're not talking to me. What's, what's going on? Why, why are you allowing this to happen to me? He wanted it gone, but the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, there are times when you're praying for people that are having problems. I've prayed for people that are sick that have gotten healed. I've prayed for people who had the same thing wrong with them and they didn't get healed. And I say, why, Lord? And um, I don't know. Maybe the Lord has a purpose and a plan in it. He obviously did here. What was the purpose and a plan? So Paul wouldn't get a big head. He wouldn't get proud. I've been to heaven, I've seen it. Eight. I can't even tell you how wonderful it was. No. So he allows the enemy to buffet him. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what was this buffeting. Um, The one I hear the most is Paul had poor eyesight to the point that some of his epistles, he had other people write for him. And one of them that he did write, he he says, see what big letters I've written this epistle to you with. 
So that's good speculation. It could have been a physical problem that, that Paul was having, and he says, I want to get healed from this thing. I mean, Timothy had a stomach problem, and um, I'm sure he prayed for him, and, um, but he wasn't healed, so he says, be careful with the water you're drinking, where you are. Drink a little wine instead. It'll take care of your stomach. And so sometimes the Lord answers prayer. Um, the point I want to make here is the Lord always does not answer your prayer. And sometimes the answer is no. Now I like yes, and I like wait a while. I don't like no. Everybody on board with me on that one? I I can handle yes, and I can handle wait a while. Uh, if If I want it, and he says no, then I'm not very happy with that. But it's also another uh, doctrinal issue that we have to bring up at this time because there is some confusion, I don't think maybe here at Calvary or the Calvary Chapel Movement because we've been pretty well taught on that. I would like to make here a distinction between being demon-possessed and demon-oppressed, okay? There's a difference between being demon-oppressed. Paul is being oppressed, buffeted, but he's not being possessed, And let me say this loud and clear. A born-again believer cannot be possessed by Satan or a demon. They can only be oppressed. Everybody with me? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, just a couple pages away, and I'll read two verses. And the whole idea here is light and darkness can't dwell together. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he said, don't you realize that you're the temple of God and God dwells in you? Second Corinthians 6 uh, says, and what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? None. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God, that's you, with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As it says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let it to put it to you this way. You can have a room filled with light, but you can't have that same fill, room filled with light and darkness at the same time. Is everybody following my train of thought? They're mutually exclusive. You can't have light and darkness dwell together. So that's what, let's go back to Second uh, Corinthians uh, 12. And Paul is basically just glad that the Lord has explained to him, Paul, I have, to, I have to allow this to happen. I want to keep you usable. I don't want you to get a big head and think you're somebody that you're not because of the abundance of the, the revelation. And therefore, he says, I will take pleasure in infirmities. I wish I could say that. I am being buffeted. I don't think it's by the enemy. I think it's by pollen. (laughs) And it's driving me crazy. And it makes me feel, somebody, I was talking to somebody about it, and they use one word to describe it, miserable. (laughs) And uh, for those of you who don't suffer with it this time of year, God bless you. I'm glad for you. But um, um, it's getting better because, you know, the pollen is, Gladly going away. 
I want to give you an example, an Old Testament example of, um, of what we're talking about here. So I'm going to have you turn to the book of Daniel. And um, being corrected. Daniel chapter... Well, I really need to set this up. And as I set it up, let me tell you that the Bible says that the Lord directs the steps of his people. In other words, he goes before you. Okay, so we just finished in men's prayer the book of Ezekiel. And on Saturday morning, we just began the book of Daniel. And we knocked out four chapters. Well, when I was reading Wisdom for Today before I went to men's prayer, Chuck happened to be starting Daniel. And he, was, he gave a Bible study about fiery trials that I gave three weeks ago, almost verbatim. Now, I don't take that as a coincidence. But then it happened again this morning. Because one of the verses that I'm going to be sharing this morning that I'm going to close with is what Wisdom for Today was about today, the exact same scripture. Now, I don't take that as a coincidence. I see it as a hand of the Lord. It's encouraging to me that we are where we're supposed to be as we teach chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse through the Bible. And it even goes over into, I'll be talking a little bit more about men's prayer in a minute. Chapter one of Daniel is um, um, Daniel being in Babylon. He's being raised up. And uh, in chapter two, uh, what we talked about yesterday is his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. They're all very sharp. Tells us they were good-looking guys. And then they were put in administrative roles in Nebuchadnezzar's government. All of chapter two is a dream. It's a dream that none of his wise men or astrologers um, could interpret. Well, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, well, tell us what you dreamt and uh, we'll tell you what it means. And he says, I'm not falling for that one. Uh, but then the decree was given, okay, you're all dead. I'm gonna kill every wise man in Babylon, every single one of them. Well, that included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel gets word of this edict from Nebuchadnezzar. So he goes to him and he says, can we have a prayer meeting with the guys and I'll get back with you? And the king says, yeah, okay. So Daniel goes, he has a prayer meeting, and the Lord reveals everything to Daniel, what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. He saw an image, and uh, we're told here that um, the image was, um, the head was of gold. If you go to verse 31 of chapter 2, you are watching and behold a great image. And the great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and it was awesome. The head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly of thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image of the feet, iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. And he goes on to interpret uh, the dream and 
he says that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold and that the stone comes out and crushes this image. It becomes powder, it's blown away, and in its place, the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And then he says in verse 44 about this kingdom, and in the days of these kings, the kings of ten toes, do you know that the globalists, the number of sections that are trying to divide the planet into, happens to be ten, just for what it's worth. And um, that would be the, the ten toes. And then it says, verse 44, in the days of these kings, my friends, we're at the precipice of this right now. So in the days of what we're seeing leading up to is in this t- period of time that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom will be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it will stand forever. Now, this is one of the great wis- witnessing tools you can ever have because in chapter seven, it tells us who these kingdoms are. The head of gold was Babylon. Babylon was conquered conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was defeated by the Roman Empire. There has not been a world empire since the Roman Empire. But it says in the latter days, there will be one that will consist of 10. And then in chapter seven, it tells the person who is over it, this little horn will be arrogant and he will cause all the world to worship him. And you really, and we were talk, I was talking to somebody yesterday at men's prayer as they were doing an in-depth study on Daniel. And you can't understand Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. What it doesn't mention here is what preceded Babylon. There were two world um, empires before. Egypt was the first, and then Assyria. Archaeologists could only go back to Egypt with their when they do ancient digs and archaeological work. They won't go back any farther than Egypt. So when you hear people like Carl Sagan say, We've been here for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. And um, uh, this tooth is 500 billion years old. No, there's no science that backed this up. What does back up science is the archaeological work that dates back to the first world empire, Egypt. Then Assyria, but they're not mentioned here. Why? Why? because this is during Daniel's time in Babylon. He's starting with Babylon and going from there. There's still one more that is unfolding before our eyes, and I want to read this last part here. 45, the stone is Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as you saw the stone uh, cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king What will come to pass after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Nothing's going to stop what we're talking about from unfolding. Well, the king is blown away. 
he falls down and he starts worshiping Daniel and he promotes Daniel to be next to himself the number two guy on all of Babylon. Well, then in chapter three, something happens. I think he went home and slept on it and he said, did Daniel say that somebody was gonna take my place, the head of gold? I don't like that too much. And as what chapter three is all about is Nebuchadnezzar creates his own image, only it's of solid gold. I think the numbers are interesting. It's in verse um, one here, it's 60 cubics, and its width is six cubics. I find those interesting numbers, don't you? Um, He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and 120 provinces. He oversaw the whole world. And he says, you guys all have to come. And we're gonna have all kinds of orchestras and music and bands. And when you hear the music, you bow down. And you worship the golden image. Who's the golden image? Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody who doesn't will immediately be thrown into a fiery furnace. And we went through this a couple weeks ago. So... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in a fiery furnace because he won't bow down. And the, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, the guys that threw them in, they all died because of the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, didn't we throw three guys in there? But I see four, and the fourth one looks like the son of God. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on out here. And so they came out, and um, as a result, um, he makes a decree in the last verse, verse 29. There's, there is no God like your God, is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Therefore, verse 29, I make a decree that any people, nations, or language which speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Their houses will be made an ash heap because there's no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Chapter four is King Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. And it begins, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare to you the signs and wonders what the Most High God has worked for me. And I'm not going to read all of it, but he basically gives his testimony. Let's go to where his testimony ends. And we read here, as he gives his whole testimony, he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true and his ways just, and then he closes, and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. What did he do to Paul to keep him in his place? He allowed something to happen to him to keep him humble. One of the guys at men's prayer yesterday says, I fully expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Well, imagine me getting up after I'm going through my notes and I thought, well, I think I'll read my wisdom for today. 
Uh, June 12th, let's see. Oh, Daniel 4, verse 37. The verse I just read. So I feel compelled to read this one page to you. As I often say, Chuck can say more in one page than I can say all day long. (laughs) The easy way or the hard way. And he quotes Daniel 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. All those whose works are true and his ways just and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. How much more prideful can you get than to make an image to yourself and to command that the world worship it? My friends, it's gonna happen again. We're not gonna be here. It says anybody who did not worship the image of the beast will be killed. And there's a direct correlation. Then Chuck says this. Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely gifted man, perhaps too gifted. He began to be lifted up with pride. He began to feel that his accomplishments were all the result of his own brilliance. The Bible tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God warned Nebuchadnezzar of the dangerous path he was walking, but Nebuchadnezzar chose to ignore the warning. God is so faithful, he always warns us when we're headed toward dangerous ground. When God issues a warning, you can learn the lesson he wants you to learn in one of two ways, the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is to heed his warning. Paul said, praise the Lord, you've talked to me. Okay, great. All I wanted to hear was from what your reasoning was. The hard way is to continue walking towards trouble. Nebuchadnezzar chose the hard way. He again became prideful. In the same hour, he went insane. It took seven years for him to recognize God's sovereignty. This went back and forth for a good 10 minutes in men's prayer yesterday because it says seven seasons. It doesn't say seven years. It's implied, but they also kept time from one new moon to the next new moon and by the seasons of the year they kept time. So Chuck is uh, persuaded, though, at seven years, and I'm certainly not going to argue with Chuck. It took seven years for him to recognize God's sovereignty. God turned him into a wild animal. Um, He grew long fingernails, long hair, and he lived out in the outdoors in the dew for that period of time. And then he came to his senses and he says, I'm nothing and God is everything. And God restored everything back to him. That's part of chapter four. Um, Nebuchadnezzar chose the hard way. He became prideful in that same hour he went insane. It took seven years for him to recognize God's sovereignty. The Lord loves us too much to let us get by with those things that will destroy us because we belong to him. He will always bring the warning and the lesson we need to keep us from trouble. Whether we learn them the easy way or the hard way is entirely up to us. June 12th, today. Now, turn with me. There's a difference, we're switching gears now. There's a difference between Paul's thorn and the Lord correcting us when we're in need of discipline. The first part of it was to keep him humble so he could still be used. But there's times when you and I need to be taken to the woodshed 
because we're doing something wrong. So with that, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I'm glad the Lord deals with these um, warm, fuzzy Bible studies about buffeted by demons and um, getting disciplined and chastised and makes me feel so good inside. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, picking it up in verse five. He addresses this issue of correction and discipline and the necessity of it. Verse five, and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. And don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastises and, every, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure the chastising, some people get chastised and they said, I didn't sign up for this. I thought this was a walk in the park with the Lord, you know, walking in the garden, that sort of thing, not at all. If you endure the chastising, God will deal with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chastise? But if you are without chastising, of which you have come partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if you're doing something wrong and, and, um, and you're not being corrected by the Holy Spirit, then you're not a son. You're not born again. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastise us, our heavenly earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness which those have been trained by it. Now, Dad didn't take me to the woodshed lesson that many times my whole life. But I'll tell you one of the stories this morning. Some of them I can't. <laughs> um, I remember the time where mom used to have a fly sweater on the refrigerator, and all she had to do was look at it, and it pretty much kept us in order. And she'd go after the fly sweater, and or just give you that look, that mother look. Everybody here has heard the expression, if I have to stop this car, <laughs> that was dad's threat. Okay, well, there was this one time where I realized I was, I was growing up. I was taller than my mother. And she told me to do something. I said, no, not going to. I said, I told you to do something. I said, I'm taller than you are. And then I got the wait till your father get home statement. And so dad got home. And when he got home, I went and sat in the bathroom and locked the door. (laughs) And mom was having a little talk with dad. He said, son, come out here. I didn't come. So he told me a second time. He said, I said, get out here. And I mean now. So I went out, and um, 
He said this to me. He said, son, if you ever talk to your mother that way again, you're dead. (laughs) Or something along those lines. I don't remember exactly what it said. But it was one of the times that spare the rod, spoil the child came into effect. And why do I bring it up? Because the Bible brings it up. Which of us have not had heavenly thought? earthly fathers who when we did something wrong they correct us why so we don't make the stupid mistake again and um, I don't want to tell that one I want to hear one more <laughs> yeah we got a little time alright so uh, my best friends were um, Mike Miller and James Strasher and it was this time of year you know where they're putting up the fireworks stands and everything like that and um, um me and my two buddies had this thing worked out when you go to these fireworks stands that two of us would keep the guy who's running the stand busy while the other one of us was just st- stuffing it, our bags full of uh, all this fireworks stuff. And uh, then the guys would say, okay, we're gone now, but we'd hit three or four of these places around town in Oshkosh. And so what do I do with all this stuff? Well, you shove it underneath your bed. And mom's making a bed one day and she finds these bags Big bags of fireworks. And she said, where did you get these? Oh, I said, uh, Jimmy Strasher's dad gave, gave them to us. And um, she let it go and, and left it at that. Well, my dad's a barber in Oshkosh. And he happened to cut Jimmy Strasher's father's hair. <laughs> and he said, it's nice. I don't know where he got all these fireworks, but I really appreciate you um, um, giving all these fireworks to my son. Well, I didn't give any fireworks to your son. Well, we were camping that weekend. Kuzo Lake, for those of you who are campers, up by Silver Lake there, and I had all these fireworks. And Dad says, where'd you get those fireworks, son? I told him the same story over and over again. He said, in the tent. That's, a, that's a one of other three or four or five times that... Um, the rod of instruction was applied to the seat of learning. (laughs) Whom the Lord loves, he corrects, so that you know that it's wrong to steal, son, and you better not do it again. And he left his mark of impression on me. Parents are afraid to do that these days. But having said that, we have an Old Testament picture of this New Testament teaching that I'm just talking to you about. So let's go to Daniel chapter 9 this time. Daniel 9, looking at verses 1 through 10. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood stood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, God is correcting Jerusalem and he's going to chastise them and correct them for the next 70 years. goes on to say, and the reason for this is that God's word said that they had to let the land lay fallow one in every seven years and they didn't do it. And so the Lord says, okay, I'm going to get my 70 years one way or the other, so I'm going to correct you. I'm going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to come in and take Jerusalem 
destroy it, and you're going to spend 70 years in captivity. You're going to be corrected. So Daniel, in verse three, says, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request and prayer by supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenants and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned. Here's the confession. And Daniel is repenting. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. As we read through what Psalm 119, what is one of the words used for God's word? Precepts. We have not kept what you told us to do. And as a result, correction is necessary. Why? So that you will keep what I tell you to do. Neither have we heeded your servants the prophets who spoke in your name to your kings, namely Jeremiah, and our princes to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. Uh, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our king, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. David is confessing here, and the sin again was, he's disciplining Israel in verse 10, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his law which he has set before us. You said do this, we didn't do it. Therefore, correction and discipline is necessary. So God disciplined them for 70 years in Babylon. Um, During this period of time, um, I need you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is right after Ezra. And um, right before, I believe, Esther. So we're looking at that part of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter one. And we have here in chapter one, news from Jerusalem. Now you're familiar with this. This is when Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And he's in uh, Sushan, the citadel. And uh, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. And um, he gets news back from Jerusalem. And the report that he gets without reading all this is none of it's good. Those that are back there are despondent. They're discouraged. Uh, They're not doing any work. They're doing nothing. And the city lies in ruins and the temple lies in ruins and nobody's doing any work at all, period. And so now he's got to go stand before the king. He just gets all this bad news and he's the cupbearer and you couldn't be sad in the presence of the king. But the king read his body language, says, what's the problem, Nehemiah? Why are you sad? Oh, it shows, does it? He goes, yep, it shows. He said, well, I just got word that um, those back in Jerusalem are completely in despair. They have no 
willingness to do any work. They're just despondent. What do you want? I want you to give me a letter that gives me permission to go back with building supplies, permission to get timbers from Lebanon. And so he does. And in verse 9, we have Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem, but he doesn't tell anybody. And while he's there, um, we're introduced to Shambhalat and Tobiah, enemies of Israel. And we find that um, in verse 12, that Nehemiah gets up at night and a few men with him. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was our there are any animal with me except the son of which I, I rode. So I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent's wall and to the refuge wall and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. He's doing an inspection. Then I went to the fountain gate to the king's pool and there was no room for the animal for that was under me to pass. In other words, there was so much rubble. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews or the priests and nobles or the others who did the work. I want to read down to verse 17 and 18 now. And then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in? How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me so that he said, let us rise up and build. And they began to set their hands to do the good work. What did they need? A word of encouragement. And um, he's speaking in the name of the Lord. So the people here um, actually begin the process of working. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter four. And we read in Nehemiah chapter four, pick it up at verse four, as Shambhat, Sambalat and Tobiah are saying, you guys are wasting your time. Even if a fox comes up against the wall you're building, they'll knock it down. A lot of applications there as we do the work of the Lord, people will speak against you, saying you're just wasting your time talking to me. No, God's word will never return void. Keep doing it. And so they did. Verse four, uh, in response to Shambalat and Tobiah, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach upon their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Sounds like the psalm we read this morning. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Why? For the people had a mind to work. Turn with me to chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Nehemiah 6, verses 15 and 16. They've been there for quite a while. Nothing's been done. So 15 says, so the wall was finished and the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. 
they rebuilt the whole city in 52 days. And it happened when our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work which was done. Let's go back to verse six of chapter four and I wanna get a little sidetracked here. Why? It says, for the people had a mind to work. Why? Because the people had a mind to work Well, let's get back to Paul. Did Paul have a mind to work instead of charging churches? Yeah, he was a tent maker. He also says, if you don't work, you don't eat. One of the guys at men's prayer yesterday talking about the work ethic of the young people in our nation today, he's at a job where he's overwhelmed and they're always hiring people to come in to help almost on a daily basis. And he told the guys at men's prayer that they'll come in at the morning, but they won't come back in the afternoon. Or they'll come in for one day, and you'll never see them again. And I said, why is it? Because he says they have no desire to want to do work, physical work. Me personally, I, you know, for seven years, we painted houses. And um, uh, we had a burden that the Lord was putting on our hearts to build the first Pilgrim's Cafe in the early 80s. And the guys there did all the work. And uh, we, we were there for ministry reasons. I was, actually, I was gonna bring up a um, Pilgrim's Cafe menu. And it, it was a ministry to us, not a restaurant. And if you turn it over, we clearly lay out Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about why uh, Uh, We walk by faith and why you have to be born again. I mean, that's in the back of the menu. Everybody knew that Pilgrim's Cafe was a Christian cafe. And um, um, what we did, we like to think we did well. When I read about the gifts that God gives some of these builders, they were very meticulous in their abilities and what they did and how they did it. And I believe we should be the same way. I, I believe we should try to be the best at whatever job that you have. Well, then, in the late 1990s, after we put four building projects on this building that you're in right now, we did all the work except the stuff that had to have city um, put a stamp of approval on it. Otherwise, everything you're looked at were done by people that are sitting in these pews right now. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. And we put four building projects on since 1982. And um, the city actually acknowledged um, Pilgrim's Cafe downtown. Um, Business of the Year Award, the Golden Fork Award for the best sandwich and meal in downtown Appleton, the comeback year of the award. And um, the city was actually acknowledging that they liked um, the way that we, we did things. And I, I think that should be our attitude. Dwight, where are you going with all this? I wanna go back to Paul and Corinth and keep this in context. What's Paul trying to do? He makes a big point out of the fact that I didn't charge you guys and you're rich. <laughs> you're the richest city in the world with your two ports. There's 700,000 of you, and two-thirds of them are slaves. 
And to this majority, I think he's telling them, look, you're the problem because you don't have a work ethic. You want slaves to do the work for you. And what we're seeing happening in our countries today, next week is Father's Day, so I'll say nice things about fathers next week. But this morning, I'm gonna exhort you. Where a son learns how to work is from his father. Can I get an amen from that? Those work ethics need to be instilled and to be taught and to tell them, well, Dad, I don't feel like working right now and uh, the rent's due and um, you know, the government will pay for this. I think I'll move back home for a while. You know how prevalent that is across our country today? No work ethic. Well, I want us to be the, even though we're in the majority, in the minority, as far as talking and having Bible studies like this. And exhortations to dad. Don't, don't be afraid to put your foot down and say, <laughs> uh, Rudy's probably gonna yell at me for doing this afterwards, but it's his son's birthday. And um, uh, we're having fun with him in the back room. And he says, when you're 16, you're gonna get a job. <laughs> and I thought, I'm gonna use that in a Bible study this morning. <laughs> because that's, you know, that's what a father should do. And he should, by example, show how to do it. And my, my dad was very good at keeping me, we were talking about how many paper routes we had and cleaning the barbershop on Saturday morning and, and, um, and all those things that if you want it, you gotta work for it. That was basic, basically it. I think I've made my point there. Let's close this thing up this morning by turning to the book of Ezra, Uh, chapter six. Ezra is right before Nehemiah. And while you're turning, I mentioned to the guys yesterday at men's prayer that the return from Babylon to Jerusalem happened in three different stages. And um, uh, the, the chronology and the relationship of the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther all happened they were contemporaries of their, their time. Now in Ezra, uh, the first return happened under Zerubbabel, and that's in Ezra 1 through 6. The second return is um, uh, in Ezra from chapter 7 to 10. Now the book of Esther would have taken place during this period of time, And then the third return we have in the book of Nehemiah, the third return. Cyrus the Persian overthrew Babylon in October 539 BC and issues his decree following the Jews to return in 538 BC. The temple is begun in 536 BC. The exile last only 50 years after 586 BC, but the 70 years um, figure for the captivity is taken from a beginning date of 606 BC. Then the first deportation to Babylon takes place, the rebuilding of the temple. It's discontinued in 534, resumed in 520, and completed in 515 BC. It began under Cyrus and finished under Darius I. The two intervening kings are not mentioned in any of these books. The prophets Haggai, Zechariah, 
uh, ministered during Zerubbabel's time about 520 BC and following years, Esther's story fits in between the reign of Xerxes and Ezra's ministry during these three waves of deportation to Babylon and three returns from Babylon. Why give us a history lesson, Dwight? Because there had to be something to keep them going. And that's what I'm going to close with this morning. When it gets to an exhortation of how do we maintain um, what the scripture tells us to do as far as um, responding to correction and uh, being a good example as far as leaders, what keeps you going? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Let's uh, close by looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. My Bible just opened up to that. And um, this is how it happened. Even though it's in Nehemiah, the one who's giving the speech here is Ezra. Let's pick it up in verse 1. He's famous that they had a hotel named after him. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the Watergate. <laughs> Just kidding. Then they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. They had lost the Bible. Let that sink in. They didn't have a Bible. And now Ezra's taking the Bible. So Ezra the priest brought the law, which is the Bible, before the congregation of men and women, and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it from the open square that was in front of the water gate, from morning until midday. I got another, I can go for another hour and 45. Just kidding. Before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform, probably one of the first pulpits ever ever came up with, which they had made for the purpose, what purpose? For him to read God's word. And for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood all these guys. (laughs) Verse six, Verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Okay, there's your cue. I get to sit, you get to stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord, with their faces to the ground. Also Jehu, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamnan, Akab, uh, Shabbathiah, and the rest of these guys. <laughs> but this is the important verse right here, verse eight. This is what Calvary Chapel is all about. And I'll close with this last verse. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And then they gave the sense that helped them to understand what was just read. I picked up my car from getting some work done on it. 
And um, it wasn't quite done, and so I was killing time with the gal behind the desk and wanted to know what I did and all that kind of stuff. And so I was talking to her. I had a God of Wonders that I'd given to her. And she says, well, what kind of church is it? I said, well, Calvary Chapel is pretty much known for teaching the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And when we teach it, we stop. And we'll take a section of it and explain why Paul had to have a thorn in his side or why God disciplines people. I didn't mention that to her. She says, you know, I would go to a church like that because when I read the Bible, I don't understand what it says. And I said, well, that's what Calvary Chapel is all about. We come, we teach the Bible all the way through, and when we're done, we go back and do it all over again. And so as we close this morning, let's keep our Bible study in context. What is Paul trying to accomplish? Well, he's trying every means possible to get the attention of this rebellious minority who have a problem with his authority. But doesn't he say, look, I don't have authority. Don't think of me more than what I am. I'm just reading the Bible and giving you the explanation of what it means. Jesus said in the epistles, it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing how? By the word of God. These people did not have the word of God, and when they heard it, it says, um, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and the priests and the scribes and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord, for all the people wept. They wept when they heard the word of God and all the things that they had done wrong that Daniel repented of in Daniel chapter nine. And when they heard it, they wept. How do we stay the course during this period of time? Why do we have thorns in the flesh? Why does God correct us? How does he correct us? What's the plumb line? How do we know we're walking straight? My friends, there's only one way. Only one way. This book, all scripture, one of the 316s in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, not some of it, is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction. And that's the study that um, as we make our way, Paul is trying to get through to these rebel rousers (laughs) who simply don't want to hear God's word and they didn't like the source that it was coming from. So how do we stay the course until the Lord comes to take us home? Stay in the word. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And we pray as we go about on this beautiful day that you have given us you tell us that heaven and earth is going to pass away but the book that we read this morning will never pass away and that you hold this word Heavenly Father up higher than your own name Lord help us have the same respect uh, for it and thank you Lord for correcting us when we're wrong and help us um, receive instruction like Paul did even though he didn't like what was going on all you had to do is talk to him and say Paul it's necessary 
because when you're weak, then you're strong. In Jesus' name, amen.